from our studios around the world, this is Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. Every month, we bring you the world's culinary tourism industry professionals and share with you strategies, tactics, and information that help make you a more effective leader, communicator, and professional in our culinary tourism industry. I'm your host, Eric Wolf. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode 66 of the Business of Food Travel podcast. Today, we will be speaking with Chef Darren McLean. Chef Darren is one of Canada's most acclaimed and outspoken chefs, restaurateurs, and environmental advocates. Seeking to showcase Canada's culinary scene to international audiences, McLean was Canada's sole contender and a finalist on Netflix's global cooking competition, The Final Table. He is also the first Canadian chef ever invited to collaborate with Princess Cruises. McLean is passionate about sustainability and the food building community. While he regularly participates in events as an educator, speaker, and culinary judge in Canada and abroad, he is happiest when in the kitchen. McLean's Japanese izakaya-style restaurant Shokunen in his home city of Calgary, Alberta, has been voted one of Canada's top 50 restaurants for three years in a row. Canada's ethnic mosaic inspires Chef Darren. His appreciation for diversity leads him to travel extensively, further developing his unique perspective on food and the culinary experience. McLean has spent considerable time in Japan studying the cuisine of the country that inspires him most. Believing in the power of food to bridge cultures, he welcomes global chefs to his country and kitchen, and he himself travels often from Tokyo to Mexico City to collaborate with others. Here's our conversation with Chef Darren. Chef Darren, thank you very much for being on the Business of Food Travel podcast today. Thank you so much for having me on the Business and Food Travel podcast today. I am intrigued by your background. You're quite an accomplished chef. You've been on Netflix on the final table as a finalist, and you have really a, a tremendous culinary pedigree. How did you get interested in cooking? Oh, same, same way most people do through their mom. So my mother was an amazing cook, so I decided... Uh, and when my mom went back to school, somehow she still always was able to create really amazing meals for us. So when she went back to school, I started cooking as well. And it became like just a bit of an obsession. I remember like trying to jazz up Campbell's cream of mushroom soup and simple things back in the day um, just to make you know meals for my brother and sister. But professionally, how I became interested in cooking was uh, working for a Japanese restaurant um, and uh like eating in Japanese restaurants and really starting to understand that food could be more than just putting, you know, things together on a plate. Food could be intellectually fulfilling. Food could be artistically fulfilling. Food could have meaning. Um, and so in that way, gastronomy actually became something that I became interested in. And then where did you do your culinary training? Uh, I informally worked in a numerous amount of uh, like a myriad of restaurants, both ethnic and Western. Um, and then I decided when I was 24 years old to formalize or 23 years old to formalize my culinary training. Uh, so I went to the Stratford chef school on the advice of my grandfather. He said, you got to get your ticket. So I went to just get a ticket. And what I found at the Stratford chef school was a pretty amazing world of Michelin star and Michelin star chefs and local produce. It was the first time that I realized why eating a strawberry in season was better, not just for the environment, but tasted better. Uh, because they just had so many great local farms and producers there to engage with in that part of Ontario. On the advice of your grandfather, that's interesting. What was it that he knew that you didn't at that stage of your life? Um, I was very much like, you know, Anthony Bourdain in the days of old and since that uh, I was catering 
you know, events for people and thought I knew what I was doing. And I had just come off doing a really big catering contract for the Pemberton Music Festival uh, years ago. And I went and tried to show off to my grandfather. And my grandfather was a very hard, um, old school military man. And he said, you know, that's all well and good, but you need a ticket. You need to have some sort of credentials for anyone to take you seriously as a chef. And so I looked at the options of culinary schools and most schools at the time, especially in Alberta, were um, more hotel driven. And I had no interest in doing hotels or chains. So there was a really good program um, on the Food Network that was chronicling uh, chef school is what it was called. And it chronicled this Stratford chef school. So I wound up going there and uh, it changed my whole life. I'm sure it did, as I'm sure did being on, on Netflix. What was that like? It must have been exciting and a, a real important part of your career. Yeah, I mean, Netflix definitely changed the trajectory. The exciting thing about being on Netflix was obviously the opportunity to showcase what I am capable of. In Calgary, especially in the prairies in Alberta, if you're a culinary artist, and there's so many amazing chefs in Calgary and Edmonton and, and the prairies, but we are unsung because Food Network is based in Toronto or Vancouver. Um, Montreal is known as a food destination in Canada, and so we're often overlooked. So being able to draw attention to my part of the world was pretty incredible opportunity. So being on Netflix was really important because as a chef, I'm uh, or all chefs, we're at the whim of, especially nowadays with social media, um, we're at the whim of the opinions of anyone who can sit at a keyboard or type on their phone. And so I was dealing with a lot of that in my life uh, professionally and then going on Netflix and actually being judged by the best chefs and the best judges in the world and being found worthy was a tremendous boon to my sense of identity and creativity, uh, which I think is really important as a chef. So Netflix gave me that. And the other thing that really came out of Netflix and that opportunity that I thought was really important were the people that I met on that program. See, Netflix had no prize money. So you were there for love of the game, basically. And so was every chef there. And I mean it when I say it, every single chef on that program could have won the show. Um, you know, I like to say that I made it to the finale and I was, you know, one of the finalists and that's wonderful. And I was, but, you know, I'm very lucky that I'm a Canadian chef because I was pretty well versed in most of the cuisines, even a small amount, whereas a lot of the other chefs weren't. And it actually made me really understand the power of being a chef in Canada. Uh, because of the access that we have to so many different cultures. And it actually informed the restaurants that I did later on in my career after Shokunin. One other amazing thing that came out of the Netflix final table opportunity were the relationships with some of the chefs that I competed with and also the chefs that judged me. So since that time, I've been able to do collaborations with many of these chefs. Um, they've introduced me to other chefs that we've been able to bring to Canada and vice versa. So it's actually afforded me the opportunity to cook and travel, which is every chef's dream, with amazing people. And so these people that I competed with were all incredible. And we stay in touch. Actually, I have uh, Shane Osborne, who was a finalist with me, uh, arriving in Calgary in a couple of weeks to cook with me for 10 days. So pretty amazing opportunity. Indeed. And in fact, I found your entire cultural chef exchange, which is on your website, really interesting. And I know Rodrigo Pacheco. Oh, very cool. He's incredible. Yeah, yeah. He's a culinary ambassador for the FAO for the United Nations. He's doing incredible work for sustainability and um, 
and for the environment itself and challenging the way we look at plants. He was one of the most incredible competitors I've ever seen in my life. And he's actually coming as well. Exactly. Yeah. And so for our listeners, um, Rodrigo spoke at uh, one of our online summits. I think it was last year he spoke and great guy, super nice, uh, totally gets it, very passionate about Ecuadorian everything. And I've spent some time in Ecuador as well. And we have two ambassadors of our association there. And I have to agree that Ecuador is really one of the unsung heroes of Latin America. The food there is just spectacular. And what a, a lovely experience it was to work with him. Yeah, I mean, Rodrigo, it's funny because, you know, TV is always edited one way or the other. And so his partner, Charles Michel, who I respect greatly, is very, you know, articulate and an incredible showman. Um, but, you know, when you were watching behind the scenes, Rodrigo is just such a technically proficient chef as well as an artist. I mean, he is he's one of my favorite people on earth, and I'm so excited that I get the opportunity to cook with him. And had we not been on Netflix together, those opportunities wouldn't have happened. And so it's, uh, it's a it's a pretty, pretty wild thing. And then Ecuadorian cuisine, and also just Ecuador itself as being the, you know, the guardians of the Galapagos, etc. Um, it's pretty incredible what they've done in terms of sustainability and their waters and ecotourism as well as a as a reflection of the people and how much they care for the land there so it's it's pretty incredible indeed so this cultural chef exchange that you do mm -hmm. was that a project that came out of netflix or was that an idea you had before you know a really great friend of mine once said that collaboration is the new form of competition and um I was I was intrigued by that idea. I mean, when I first started my culinary career, collaborations were really kicking off. I mean, nobody collaborated as chefs. Chefs traditionally were very competitive. There was no reason or want to cook with another chef or share a restaurant space with another chef or have them have access to any of your recipes, for example. Um, but what really came out of uh, Netflix I wouldn't say so much, the, the, but it is kind of in a way. I met Shin Takagi, who is a two Michelin star chef from Japan when I was on Netflix. And five years ago, uh, just for fun, I invited him to come to Canada and collaborate with me. So I've been obsessed with collaboration because being in landlocked Alberta and having you know a limit of culinary expertise, at least you know 15 years ago here in the province, collaboration was one of the few ways that I could develop my skills, exercise my strengths, learn about my weaknesses from other chefs. So I've been obsessed with collaborations. I've done it since my career started. As a matter of fact, a first collaboration I did with a wonderful chef here in Calgary um, led to people discovering me and me being put on the list and things like that. So collaboration is a very important part of my culinary existence. I think it's a way of of uniting chefs and, and having these small discussions where you can improve the industry through these little dinners we do together. But to get back to how the Culinary Chef Exchange started, Shin Takagi was this incredible two Michelin star Japanese chef that I met on the final table. So five years ago, I asked him to come to Canada and we just went and did the things that chefs do. Uh, we're not doing anything new or outside of the box. We went foraging in wild spaces. We went fishing. We did a little bit of hunting. Um, then through this process, Shin started to identify ingredients in Canada with Japanese names. And so I was kind of confused. At first, I was just like, oh, he saw a cow parsnip and he goes, oh, this is Fukinoto. And I'm like, Fukinoto? Is that what you call cow parsnip? He's like, no, this vegetable is Fukinoto. It's a sansai. 
And I was like, what is Sansai? And he started to explain that Sansai means the vegetables from the mountain. It's a collection of six or seven vegetables that are all sourced in Japan from the mountainside. It's actually a part of their culinary traditions to use wild edibles in the spring. They literally have a word for it, Sansai, which is mountain vegetables. So as we continued our foraging walk, Shin started pointing out other things. Oh, this is very similar to Taranome. That's another wild vegetable. Fiddleheads have a different name. And this light bulb sort of popped off in my head that we have so much to share and so many similarities, even in the foods that we source and eat. And our indigenous peoples value these mountain vegetables in Canada, the same way the Japanese people in, in, uh, value these edibles. But we don't in Canada. We don't really actively use cow parsnip in restaurants. Now fiddleheads have become trendy, certain wild mushrooms. But there's, we have all, almost all the same wild vegetables here in Canada. Albeit slightly different, you know, they're slightly different genotypes, or maybe they're a little bit bigger, or a little bit smaller, but we have so many of these mountain vegetables. And so it made me engage more with the indigenous peoples in Canada, because they were my source to understand Japanese sansai and Japanese mountain vegetables. As I had to go to the indigenous peoples here and learn about the vegetables of the mountains here in Canada. And in this way of having someone from another culture engaging with our culture and our foodstuffs, they found things that they identified with. And it really made me understand that food is dependent on the nomadic nature of humanity. We are foragers, we are hunter-gatherers, we're also farmers, human beings. And so when we go to a new place, we do these things. We hunt, we forage, we gather. And any culture will. And I started to really dive into the history of cuisine, but it all started with Shin Takagi identifying Canadian mountain vegetables with Japanese names and saying, we use this for this. And I realized I could learn a tremendous amount about my local terroir, the people around me, the indigenous cultures, by bringing people from other parts of the world, thrusting them into an environment that was different and seeing how they interpret our ingredients and our food culture and what they create. And in so doing, they would learn about Canada. And the, the twofold, the reciprocity of this is that people get to learn about Canada and we start promoting Canadian culinary food culture on a world stage in terms of tourism. That's wonderful. In terms of, you know, myself and my team's work being acknowledged internationally, that's also wonderful. But that's where it was all born out of was this powerful opportunity to see ourselves. We always learn so much about ourselves from others. You know, your mother will give it to you straight. You'll never give it to yourself straight. <laughs> You'll never be honest as somebody from somewhere else will be. And that really started to formulate what the cultural chef exchange would be. And so it's a real exercise in culinary diplomacy. You have chefs have powerful personalities and we want to do different things with different ingredients. It's taught me a tremendous amount of humility because I might want to cook with something, but I have to relent and let that chef explore their culinary narrative in Canada. And so that's sort of the basis of it. So it came out of the final table in the sense that I met Shin Takagi, um, but it wasn't born from the idea of the final table and all these chefs together. I was just with a chef who identified things locally with familiarity. If we look at food historically and we decide to go back and understand when I go back to food being a result of the movement of people, is anytime you try to put a cuisine into a box, you limit the possibilities of that cuisine. If I say tempura to you, you're going to say 
oh, that's from Japan. But tempura is not from Japan. In essence, it is decidedly Japanese, but it was brought by Portuguese Jesuits in the 15th century or 16th century. In over 400 years, it became the tempura we know today. It's totally Japanese, but its roots are from collaboration. If I say tacos, you might love tacos with beef and pork. There are no tacos with beef and pork in Mexico until the Spanish arrive and bring beef and pork with them. The tomato, one of my favorite ingredients, is synonymous with Italian cuisine. But the tomato itself is from Mexico or Mesoamerica. And in fact, the Italians wouldn't touch it for almost 100 years because they considered it a poisonous nightshade. So, you know, and when I speak of Italian cuisine, most Italian pasta shapes are as a result of the spice trade and from Chinese dim sum, which predates most of the stuffed pastas by four or 500 years. So to me, food is completely dependent on people, their histories, their traditions, their stories, and what they apply to the ingredients they find when they move. This nomadic nature of humanity actually drives cuisine. So the Cultural Chef Exchange is a way for me to explore that idea, experiment with that idea, make historical references, and learn about other cultures. And then the main crux of what the Culinary Chef Exchange is all about is to look at Canadian ingredients and try to have a conversation around what Canadian food is and what Canadian food tourism or destination can be. And the reason for this is that Canada is very young. So we need this movement of people. So we have one of the most unique multicultural mosaics on the planet, um, which is a really incredible thing about being Canadian. One of the reasons I feel I was so successful on the show as a Canadian is that the French cooks really struggled with, yes, they'd win any challenge that was French or the Spanish cooks, you know, they would win the paella challenge because they were Spanish. The Brazilians won feijoada because they were Brazilian. But any part of it, these cultures that are very one, not, I don't want to say one dimensional, they're powerful, they're vast, but they're monocultures. You know, 85% of the population, let's say in Korea is Korean. 85% of the population in Japan is Japanese. Whereas in Canada, it's almost 50-50. And you have this, this great, wide, wonderful history. So Canadian food is going to be a reflection of all those cultures in 100, 150 years. And that's the purpose of the culinary exchange is to pick these cultural groups in Canada, find somebody who has a, is still in the country and identifies with these cultural groups, brings them to Canada, and then we see what's being created. And hopefully it serves also as inspiration to new Canadians, second generation, third generation Canadians that see some of these chefs and realize that they're a part of the Canadian food story. We are so much more than maple syrup and poutine. And this is something that I want to communicate through the Chef Exchange and the Cultural Chef Exchange is this wonderful unity that food brings, not just to the table, but to people and to their cultures. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's essentially the, the gist of what the Culinary Chef Exchange is all about, or the Cultural Chef Exchange, sorry. The World Food Travel Association is the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. Founded in 2001, each year we serve a community of 200,000 professionals in more than 150 countries. Thinking about a career change because of the pandemic or looking to improve your current skills? Consider our bespoke training and certification programs in culinary tourist guiding, culinary tour operations, restaurant and food service, and culinary destination marketing. Visit academy.worldfoodtravel.org to learn more and get started. You're a great storyteller. You took me on different journeys as I was listening to you. And I understand that you spent some time in Japan. Now, did that come before or after you met Chef Shin? The time I spent in Japan was actually um, eight months. 
Uh, it was a period of eight months off and on uh, before I opened my restaurant Shokunin in 2016. So I actually didn't meet Shin until we shot the show in late 2017. So I was in Japan a lot longer and a lot before I actually went there because I had this idea to endeavor to open a Japanese restaurant. Most of my restaurants have been sort of contemporary, you know, fusion Canadian, et cetera. And I just love Japanese cuisine. And it was the first cuisine I ever engaged with in a meaningful way when I was in my twenties, um, early twenties rather. So I actually went to Japan um, before and I had the wonderful opportunity to travel with one of the judges from the final table. His name was Narisawa. He's a um, really famous Japanese chef. He's in the world's 50 best uh, to this day. At the time, he was in the top 10 best restaurants in the world. He was the number one restaurant in Asia. And he gave me one of the most generous experiences of my life. I owe Narisawa so much more than I can ever repay. Um, he met a young chef who was dining in his restaurant and was just fascinated by what he was doing. And uh, Narisawa, without skipping a beat, just showed me such generosity. And he actually said to me, can you be ready in 40 minutes after lunch? I had lunch at his restaurant. We talked. I asked him some questions through a translator. And I said, sure, I can, I can be ready in 40 minutes. And my heart was beating in my chest and I was elated because I thought we were going to go have a drink or a sake or... I could just sit down with him. And um, when he told me his plan, I basically had a heart attack at the table. And he said, I'd like you to come traveling with me for three days. I'm working on a cookbook. I'd like you to come and see where I source ingredients. And over that course of the three days with Narisawa, Chef Narisawa, he took me to different restaurants. He took me to different places. He paid for everything. Never knew me. Paid for all the meals. I mean, I covered my hotel. I mean, that's notwithstanding. But basically, he paid for every meal. And he took somebody he didn't know who had a love of the culture and the food. And he just expressed such generosity to me that uh, it changed the way I looked at Japanese food. It changed the way I looked at Japanese hospitality. And it also changed the way that I looked at myself and the restaurants and what I wanted to create. And that has made all the difference. So no, I spent time beforehand um, and I was very fortunate to be able to interact and work alongside with and stage with really incredible chefs. You're the second guest in a row that has had such amazing things to say about Japanese hospitality. The guy that we interviewed on the last episode, Jonathan Delise, has spent a lot of time in Japan as well. And he had a similar story where he met a guy, I forget the exact circumstances, but the guy took him out to dinner, paid for everything, and just wanted to show him hospitality. And of course, your example is much more specific to, to your profession, but yeah, they apparently Japan does hospitality really well. It's the best in the world. It's just, it's honest and earnest and sometimes confusing and quirky. And you may not understand it, but there's such a purpose to everything that they do um, that reflects a deep, almost intergenerational passion. And, and it, it floors me every time. Anthony Bourdain said it best when he said, you know, you go to Japan and you either it's so good that you're either inspired to become a better chef or you decide to give up and stop cooking altogether because <laughs> you could never match them. So, yeah. I love it. Now, have you ever crossed paths with Nancy Matsumoto in Toronto? No, I have not. She is a Japanese Canadian and we interviewed her on our podcast episode number 58. And she wrote a book on sake. She did it during the 
the pandemic went during lockdown and she is so well versed well obviously with with her background she is so well versed mm-hmm. on everything japanese and she sent me a copy of this book and i was amazed i for the first time i i truly understood everything about sake well not everything but as much as i could and but just the way she presented it was just so easy to understand and uh, she might be a resource for you i'd be happy to to introduce you to her because she's she's a fascinating woman anytime yeah yeah i'm obsessed with sake um shokunin had the first pure junmai sake list in the city um, we don't sell any hanjozos we only spell sell pre-world war ii styles of sake these are, as you know, probably she would, I would highlight in her, this in her book um, with the polishing rates and things like that. Um, the history of sake is incredible. There are sake breweries that are 700 years old. Uh, one in particular is uh, 350 years old that we work with exclusively called Masumi. They do in-bottle fermentation like champagne, but with sake. Uh, they've been doing it for 150 years. There's wineries in Japan as well. My friend has a wonderful winery that's 120 years old with really amazing old naturalized koshu grapes these are grapes that naturalized and cloned to japan after they were brought over hundreds and hundreds of years ago so the the world of, of particularly japanese sake is is absolutely fascinating and deep in its breadth and it's uh it's my beverage of choice i rarely drink wine i'll like have a beer but uh, sake if it's available that's what i like to uh to dive into because it can be sweet and crisp like Rieslings. The problem is in North America, we're always served hot sake or sake that has alcohol added to it. So that's called the Honjozo. Is after World War II, there's a shortage of rice. So sake producers start adding distilled alcohol from Brazil to rice, or sorry, to uh, sake as they brew it. And what that creates is that real dry petrol sort of feeling sake but true sake is uh, especially jumai daiginjos jumai ginjos can be very almost sweet um they can have uh when i say sweet i don't mean sweet like wines like you would experience but you know akin to rieslings and pinot gris um but i don't always like to compare sake to wine because i think wine uh is younger than most sake so it's a it's an interesting kind of conversation I didn't realize how little I knew about sake until I saw Nancy's book, and then I thought, "Oh gosh, I I am such a newbie here. I, I, yeah. I just you know I need to go to Japan with with someone like Chef Shin or you, and just have you show me the ropes because I I feel yeah. like I would be such a exactly. idiot. You know, I I would embarrass myself if I went to a restaurant and tried to order sake. <laughs> No, I mean, it's it's hard. It's just like trying to learn the varietals in the regions of France, right? It's the same thing. But when you get into it, it's incredible. And that's why we always try to have people have Jumai Daiginjos and sweet sakes first. But anyways, I digress to your next question. <laughs> um, so what's what's next for you? For me, the the next thing that I'd really like to pursue is a, is a culinary restaurant in uh, in England. I won't go into too much detail, but we're in the works of negotiating a project in London. And uh, I'm very excited to spread my uh, my wings, as it were, and, and uh, promote and showcase, you know, uh, Canadian ingredients and Japanese techniques in another city in another part of the world. And just hopefully spread the message of, you know, sake being amazing and <laughs> and, um, you know, just kind of cooking. I just want to keep cooking. There's that's that's really what is on the horizon for me is just I want to keep doing what I do for as long as I can. You know, I'm, I'm approaching my, my late, I'm in my late thirties now. So I know I have to start thinking more long-term and more about my legacy and more about what's to come. And so 
I want to create a restaurant in a, in a city where I can obtain a Michelin star and create opportunities and larger opportunities for the people who have sacrificed so much to work with me. I have an incredible team of chefs and sommeliers and sake experts and servers and cooks and dishwashers that the more I can expand the branding and the more I can do with restaurants, the more opportunities I can create for these people and, and, and eventually hopefully train myself out of a job so I can just sit on my farm and create dishes and come to work once a day or once a week. You know what I mean? That's uh, <laughs> maybe I could just there go spend go. That time would be in nice. Ecuador with Rodrigo. So you know now what you know now, and you've you've grown into your your own, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What would you have told a younger version of you? You know, honestly, looking back at at that kid, I would have told him to slow down. I would have said the fastest way to get to where you want to go is slowly. It's like reading a recipe. You know, when you're in culinary school, you're told, read the whole recipe first. But generally what you do is you look at the ingredients and you go and you get all the ingredients and you start making the recipe and then you'll miss a crucial step. You'll mix something before you're supposed to mix it, particularly in baking, let's say, for example. And then because of it, your, your cake won't work. And you'll have to remake the whole recipe anyways. So while whilst you were moving very quickly and you thought you were going fast, you were actually slowing yourself down by trying to be expedient. And that comes from insecurity, I think. And that comes from a desire to achieve. I think that we are told on social media and Instagram and all sorts of things nowadays that we're all supposed to be millionaires and Ferraris because every attractive person we look up to is doing that. And the tremendous reality is that, you know, your success is almost always in direct proportion to what you're willing to sacrifice, unless you're born into a tremendous amount of money. Um, You know, there's a sacrifice that must be had. So I really wish I would have told him, you know, I think my ambition got in my way a lot of times and I was able to achieve an incredible amount, but not always in the best ways that I, I now looking back would have liked to have slowed down you know, works for a few more people before I opened my own restaurant, not had to carry the mantle of head chef at 26 years old when I maybe wasn't ready for it. You know, I think I could have come a lot further faster. And I think I was very fortunate that somebody believed enough in me and selected me to be on a program on Netflix. Otherwise, my restaurant would have closed. So I really believe that building the fundamental skills but that would be it. I would just really be honest and say the fastest way to get to where you want to go is slowly, you know, master a technique. It's like learning mathematics. If you keep passing math classes with 50% of the knowledge, you're going to hit a wall. But if you keep at that math class and don't allow yourself to move on to the next problem until you've mastered the first one and you have 90% for proficiency, you'll go further faster. It'll take you longer, but the road later on gets easier. And, and I think that was something I was missing when I was young. I really wanted it. I was so hungry. I thought I was so awesome and talented. And then I look back at photos from 15 years ago and I go, you clown. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, I'm glad. I think you need to have that ambition, but I think you need to, to take your time as well. Don't, don't being slowing down doesn't mean you're not ambitious. It means you're taking the time to develop yourself in such a manner that when you are challenged, you will always be successful. 
So when you were head chef at 26 years old and and up until where you are today, I'm sure that you probably Mm -hmm. have a saying or a quote that now you're known for because you you had to say something so often that you just grew into that. What what is that quote that you were known for? (laughs) Yeah, in in my restaurant, the quote I'm known for is a direct result of my restaurants always being sort of short staffed in the beginning and and always trying to do more than I was ready to do. So I always say this to my servers and to my, my particularly servers usually at the past, but it has a deeper meaning. But I basically say um, two trips are better than one tragedy. So oftentimes in life, or even just in the terms of service, you know, servers will try to take four plates. And I'd rather they just take two plates and give two to the first guest or have somebody follow them with the other two. Because if you try to take all four plates and balance too much, you might wind up dropping one of the plates. And I think that's kind of how I do it with my, my chefs as well. It's like, you know, two trips is better than one tragedy. Don't try to take all your mise en place. It's a basic way of saying, don't try to take more on in one moment than you can. I used to do that all the time. And I used to push others to do that all the time. And it's better, and I don't mean this like you still have to push in a kitchen, you still have to be on time, you still have to all that. But what I mean by that is, you know, think about what you're doing. You know, it's better that, you know, you, yeah, you make two trips instead of having one tragedy. You know, that's uh, that's sort of kind of how I like to, to look at things now. I'd rather take a little bit longer to get something done so that I do it right, correctly, and execute perfectly as opposed to trying to do too much and then failing colossally. I know it seems like an antithesis, but no, I'm not telling anyone to slow it down. What I'm asking people to do is that if you take the time in the beginning, it's like a, a, a learning curve or a bell curve. At the first beginning when you're learning new things, it seems very slow. But as you gain knowledge, that, that curve rockets skyward. So it, as opposed to take the time while you can to learn a new skill, to develop that skill. Because if you can learn how to properly brunoise a carrot, like really fast with real mastery in 10 years when you have your own restaurant and you have 30 tasks to get done in an hour you'll be able to you will become much faster so i'm not advocating being slow i'm not advocating slow it down or i'm definitely not one of these people that think we work too much or we i just think it's about thinking about what you're doing mastering techniques so you might not get that promotion as fast but when you're ready for that promotion all the other ones that come after that will start to come at, at, at much faster because you took the time in the beginning to get somewhere. And it's what I meant by reading the recipe through. You must slow it yourself down enough to read the whole recipe through so you fully understand what you're making so you don't have to make it twice. Fastest way to get somewhere is by taking your time to understand where it is you want to go, understand what your task is in front of you because that's when you make mistakes, when you're in a hurry. You know, it's like, I got to get to the airport. I just did this myself. I flew to Vancouver two days ago and I forgot my wallet at my restaurant. But that night I needed to get out of there because I was in a rush to go home and pack. And then in the morning I was in a rush to get to the airport. And I, before I knew it, I went, oh my God, I thank God I have an extra credit card in a drawer and a passport because I'm not going to be able to either get my wallet and miss my flight or catch my flight and leave my wallet behind. And it's because I was in such a rush to get out of there that night that I didn't think. And that's, you know, has slowed me down. Had I took in 15 minutes and looked at my day and sat down at the restaurant and said, hmm, 
what do I have to do? And took a breath. Then I would have had my wallet. I would have remembered where I left it. And then in the morning, I wouldn't have been as frantic. So it's a, they're silly little examples. But I just want to make it very clear that I'm not advocating to slow down. I want people to speed up. But you only do that by taking your time at first to understand what's in front of you and reading the whole recipe the whole way through. So as we start to to wrap up here, what is the next destination that you would love to travel to for food that you have not been to yet? And why do you want to go there? The next destination I'd like to travel to for food, I really would love, love, love to go to Australia. Um, I've never been there. I think they have a really deep and rich indigenous culture. I think they have some of the most unique and incredible ingredients on the planet. Um, One of my best friends is from Australia, Shane Osborne, who I'll be cooking with in the next couple of weeks. Um, So I just think that it's amazing. And Australia also has, um, is so similar to Canada as well in the prevalence of Asian food that's present, especially because it's part of that Pacific chain of islands. So I think, Australia as a culinary destination. I mean, the world knows it. Lots of incredible Michelin star chefs are opening in Australia, like Claire Smith, uh, who opened Encore in Sydney. I I just think Australia has something really incredible to offer. And in terms of countries, I think it's very similar to Canada with that multicultural mosaic and also a lot of conservatism as well. So I I really want to see how another culture handles um, similar problems and things that we have here in Canada. So yeah, Australia, it's a new country as well. It's it's a young country like Canada is. So you're, you're in many ways you're you're kind of going through the same growing pains. Oh, 100%. But Australia has been very effective in marketing themselves in a different way and I don't know if it's cuz it's got, you know, tropical beaches and things like that, but I I agree. I completely agree. Australia is very young. It does have many cultures. It does have a a, a sorted history like we do. Um, with with various issues, they are facing environmental crises and wildfires. It's it's a very interesting uh, country to look at in terms of you know seeing what they do is helping you know what we can do and vice versa. So I'm fascinated, and I have been since a little kid. I also you know like everybody want to see a koala play a didgeridoo, but uh, <laughs> well, I can attest the koalas really are as cute as they look. <laughs> no. Don't tell yeah, me that. No, yeah, and the kangaroos tomorrow. as well. They they are adorable. And the wallabies, you're, you're going to love it all. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait. Yeah, I'm just, I just love Australia because of its natural splendor. And, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated by animals. And I really believe chefs have responsibility as ecologists to understand where our food comes from and how it's sourced, if for no other reason, so that we'll have a palette to play with like an artist in colors for the next 100 years or 150 years or hopefully forever, if we can start to recover what we've lost, that's what fascinates me. And there's some incredible food and recovery efforts in Australia I wish to explore. I really think that, you know, a lot of chefs there take that very personally, you know, that chefs are ecologists. And, um, you know, our responsibility is to the environment because it's where we draw our artistry from. And hopefully we can reflect that on our plates. And, you know, and, and then I, you know, and I just really, yeah, I really want to go there. Um, yeah. Anyways. Well, I wish you the best of luck in realizing your, your future plans. I'm, I'm sure you'll make it happen. You're a doer. And uh, I'm sure that <laughs> yes, uh, within the next six to 12 months, you'll probably be on a flight to Sydney. So 
make it so, right? <laughs> yes, make it so. Oh, I love that. I'm a huge Picard fan, so that's that's yeah. really amazing. Yeah, make <laughs> it so. You picked up I'm on that. that. That's coming. good. Uh, that's yes, good. yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Chef Darren, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. It was a real treat, and I wish you all the best in, in your future endeavors. Thank you so much for your time as well today. Cannot wait to uh, explore more and see more of what you're doing as well. That's it for this episode of the Eat Well, Travel Better podcast. This episode is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association and its training academy. We'd like to hear from you. We invite you to share your ideas, questions, and thoughts about the podcast by emailing us at help at worldfoodtravel.org. Or you can connect with us and comment about the episode on major social media platforms. Special thanks to our guest, Chef Darren McLean, and our sincere thanks to you for joining us. I'm Eric Wolf, wishing you a safe, happy, and productive month ahead.